We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. To be honest, I would put myself in the same category as D-Wade. Now Artest is jumped over the scorer's table. Artest is in the stands. This man was a bona fide scrub. He can't play. When I go to the writers to tell me who can guard in this league, I'll put a gun to my own head. Welcome to the Rotowire NBA podcast. It is Thursday, April 2nd. Nick Whalen joined, as usual, by Alex Barutha. Alex, the quarantine drags on. Um, we're on week two now of full-time work from home. The Rotowire office has been locked up for, for I guess, almost two full weeks at this point. Um, what have you been doing these, these past few days since we last spoke? Uh, I don't think... I think the last time we talked, I had not watched Tiger King. And now I have watched Tiger King. Oh, well, well all right. Overall thought. The biggest development in my life so far you, you uh seen, as, what was that you've seen the whole thing saw the whole thing i binged it in two days uh and i think it was it was a it was a great binge watch it was it was definitely worth it I, it was one of those shows where people have been telling me like everyone you know i've been like you have to watch this you have to watch this and then that instantly makes me like pull back and be like it can't be that good i don't feel like watching it and then it is it is that good. So I, I do recommend it. I can't remember if you said you had seen it or not. Oh, I've seen it. I've okay. definitely seen it. Um, I, I feel like that topic has almost been like beat to death, even even though it's only been out for like, what, two or three weeks at this point. But it, it kind of came out at the right time, I guess, in terms of everyone in the entire country and possibly the world having time they, to, to binge that. They pushed it up like the Jordan documentary. 
<laughs> but yeah, we should mention that. I guess if, if you haven't heard, that's up for uh, April 19th now, I believe, is the debut. I think they're going to do the first two episodes on that night, and then it's going to be, um, I think it's each Sunday uh, for like four weeks. They're going to release two episodes. Uh, so that goes without saying that we'll be very interested in that. And I, I think we can do some full recaps uh, of each part uh, on the Roadwire NBA podcast, but still a few weeks away. Um, we have a lot to get to today, actually, given the circumstances. Uh, we, we did get, I wouldn't even say this is an official update, but we got a report from Chris Mannix, uh, of course, of Sports Illustrated, uh, who, who kind of framed his report around the possibility of the NBA resuming its season. Um, sounds like it would be maybe sometime in early to mid-July. Um, and this is, you know, like like everything that we talk about when when we mention the the possibility of resuming the season, it's not set in stone whatsoever. And, you know, a lot of this is just league sources, league executives, coaches. Um, you know, it's not coming from the NBA itself. Um, this is just reporting done by guys who who have contacts in the know. Um, but Maddox essentially lays out the the possible plan of doing the postseason in Las Vegas. So th- this isn't necessarily a new idea. Um, earlier this week, there was a report in the New York Post that um, some NBA executives had thrown out the possibility of um, playing it in Hawaii, in the Bahamas. I think Orlando, Atlantic City were on the list, um, kind of places that have you know concentrated hotel venues and arena venues where, where something like this could take place. But this latest uh, idea that, that, that Chris Mannix lays out in the article um, at least gives a little bit more detail than we've seen in some of the previous reports. So um, I, to me, the most shocking thing, and frankly, the thing that I don't like the most about this, and I, I almost thought it might be a mistake at first, the way it's laid out in the article, um, and he's citing a CNBC report from last week, and Manic says that, uh, quote, the league could play best of five series in the first round and the finals with a one-and-done style tournament replacing the two rounds in between. So I, I take that as you're playing a five-game series in round one. The conference semifinals are just a one-game series, not even a series, I guess just a one-game playoff. The conference finals are also playoff, and then you go back to five games for the finals. So what, what is the logic behind that in your eyes? <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't really know. I mean, I, I, guess, well, I guess you're making sure in the first round that you're trying to prevent any insane upsets by not doing like a first round series or a, a sorry, a, a one game series. Like you don't want the eight upsetting the one in the first round. So you're trying to get that sorted out. And then I guess the thought is how can we speed this thing up? Uh, and then you assume that the teams that get through the first round, you know, have a pretty good chance of beating each other. It's not quite 50, 50, mm-hmm. but you know, it's they're they're relatively even match. So you figure, okay, let's just get that over with. Uh, whoever wins the one game, I mean, it'd be great for you know, I mean, it's a to create a must-watch game or a series of must-watch games. Um, the one-round playoff obviously makes sense, and then um, and then you just play the finals because you doing a fi- the finals as a one-game series would be like absolutely insane. And I think you need you need some sort of at least a three-game series to get people or yeah. for people to feel like it's you know, justified or the title is legitimate. Even if the teams that got there basically beat another top team in the NBA in a one game series, which is not mm-hmm. a great sample size, but you know, what are you going to do? So, so under these circumstances, I, I think you're right that, you know, maybe the logic is trying to prevent, um, you know, the insane first round upset. If you just make that a one game series, especially because there's a decent chance that that would be the first real game that some of these teams are playing 
coming off of, you know, what would be a four month break at that point. Um, so I, I think we've, we've talked about this on past podcasts. You can kind of go back and forth and, and make a case for, you know, certain players or certain teams as to whether this absence would help or hurt them based on injuries, based on age, things like that. Um, but, but playing a five game first round series, I'm fine with. So in this, in this, um, idea, I guess you'd have five games in the first round, one, one, five. So a, a maximum of 12 games for, for any team, you know, that would, that would, if everything played out, um, a full five games in rounds one and four, why not just go three, 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 you know, you still have the 12 game max. Um, you know, I, I guess you cut down on the total number of games because in round one, you know, you have 16 teams alive. Um, so you're, you know, you're looking at eight series that could potentially go five games. So maybe that's something they're considering where they want to maximize the number of games, you know, for marketing reasons. I don't know. Um, but I don't like the idea of, you know, the, what, what seems like the more, the most meaningless series round one, which historically in the NBA of the eight first round series, like how many are actually good? Like maybe three, you know, I, I think maximizing that and then immediately minimizing the next two is just kind of counterintuitive for me. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this this kind of, you know, the the idea of this just kind of um, it, it seems like it's only being fueled by the logistical issues of resuming the season. Like you would right. never do this if, you know, the you know, if you're spending if you're not that worried about things, uh, you wouldn't do this. You know, there's there's really right. even the three game series would be better. And I just, you know, it. Th- having all the players quarantine in Vegas, like Max is kind of suggesting here um, is still an issue. And, you know, they, uh, he brings up in the article that the, the way that that would have to happen is rapid testing for coronavirus being uh, widely available. And like, that's still being developed and produced. So, mm-hmm. you know, he, he mentions that quote, an event that could be squeezed into a few weeks would require tens of thousands of tests. And that's not just going to be for the players. That's going to be for everyone who is staffing the hotels, because those have to be staffed at that point. And then right. all the media, et cetera, et cetera. There, were, there would be you know, thousands of people there who presumably would have to be tested maybe daily. Yeah, I, I, I think... Yeah, daily would maybe be a little much, but I, I think the teams that are playing that day you know, would certainly be tested after every game. Um, no, like basically if, if one person who's involved in this entire operation tests positive, you know, things would go haywire really, really quickly. So, you know, I, I think it would, it would take kind of a, a monumental effort, um, not just from the NBA, but like you said, the, the hotels have to be staffed, you know, and they can cut down on staff to some degree, but you still have to have the bare minimum there. And you have to ensure that even those people, you know, like I, I think quarantining and kind of containing the NBA players and coaches and staff and whatnot, like that's almost the easy part. But like, how do you ensure that the person who is serving food to these guys at the hotel, you know, what is he doing when he leaves to go home? Is he, you know, are you, are you making those people stay at the hotel 24 uh, seven while this is going on? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's going to be no matter what kind of a monumental undertaking, but I think if nothing else, it, it speaks to, you know, the, the kind of continued notion that the league really, really wants to find a solution. And, Ultimately, it's not going to be perfect, and even even if it ends up being this kind of backwards five one one five format, I'll take it. You know, I, I it's much better than than nothing. Uh, and Mannix's article includes some quotes from Sean Marks, Nets GM, uh, and Bucks GM John Horst, who kind of echo that. You know, they're they're basically saying like we're operating as if the season's going to resume. We have faith in the league. They're gonna. I mean, I think John Marks used the term. They're turning over every rock they possibly can. 
to find a solution. So I, I think, you know, it seems like kind of once a week or once every two weeks, we're going to kind of see a new report like this that uh, maybe gives us a peek into what the league and what the executives uh, kind of think is going to happen. But then you look at the calendar, it's only April 2nd. And we're talking about something that could happen in mid to late July. So I, I think we're still probably several weeks, if not months away from getting anything remotely concrete. Yeah, that's true, because it's going to take a while to make a decision. And then once that decision's made, the actual logistics of, OK, we're doing this now. How exactly do we set it all up is that's going to take right. a long time to figure out, too. Right. And then giving the teams some sort of warm up period, um, you know, whether that means, you know, I, I think I think the ideal situation for the league is getting to 70 games for everybody. And beyond that being just a nice round number, it also is the the minimum local TV contract deals you know so out of 82 games almost every local tv market has a contract that they must air 70 games so you know given given the the circumstances here i, I would imagine that they could find a workaround um you know based on what's happening I, I think almost everybody could agree that they'd rather finish the season than not but i think there's strong motivation to get to 70 games regardless so you know maybe maybe they find a way to play those over the course of a few days you know if, if every team is at one or two sites um, you can kind of position things and maybe play those just like day after day after day. You know, if you have, if you're a team that has four more games to play, maybe you play those over the course of four days, but that's kind of your warm up. Uh, maybe you get a few more days off and then the playoffs begin, but, um, it's, it's just going to be really interesting. I think, uh, how this shakes out and, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll get even crazier ideas as the week goes on. Yep. Support for this podcast comes from us bank. If you're looking for a credit card that fits your lifestyle, look no further. U.S. Bank has credit cards that make every day rewarding, no matter what you're into. Feeling hungry? Check out the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points on takeout, food delivery, and dining. And get two times points at gas stations, grocery stores, and on streaming. That'll keep your wallet and your mouth full. Big spender? The U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card has a low intro APR for large purchases or balance transfers. And you call the shots with the U.S. Bank Cash Plus Visa Signature Card. Choose two categories each quarter. Earn 5% back on your first $2,000 of eligible purchases from those categories. So don't just get a credit card, get the right card to make every day more rewarding. Cash back, merchandise, travel rewards, and low intro APRs are waiting. Learn more at usbank.com slash credit card. The creditor and issuer of these cards is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc., and the cards are available to United States residents only. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. So uh, most of the, the gambling content that we've been monitoring throughout the year um, has essentially been taken down. You know, you can't bet if you go on DraftKings or FanDuel Sportsbooks, um, you can't bet on MVP, most improved, six man, all, all that stuff that we've been talking about. Um, really, the only odds that are still up on those sportsbooks are NBA title odds. Like you can't even bet on conference odds. It's just the NBA title. Uh, so I wrote up a little piece earlier this week for the site that kind of broke those down. Nothing too surprising. Um, I also included some notes on uh, the Las Vegas Superbook releasing some kind of hypothetical first round odds. Um, they, they put these out there with the assumption that things aren't going to change and these will be the playoff matchups, uh, which I think there's a pretty good chance will ultimately be the case. Um, so let's actually start with with the round one odds. So we can we can pull those up and just kind of parse through those, see if there's anything that you'd maybe be willing to to lay some money on. Unsurprisingly. Uh, the Bucks and the Lakers, huge favorites. Um, Milwaukee's a minus 20,000 favorite uh, over Orlando, which you can get at plus 4,000 in what would be the 1-8 in the East. 
And in the West, LA, not quite as big of a favorite. They're minus 15,000 over Memphis. Uh, the two seeds in each conference, Toronto, minus 700 over Brooklyn. Uh, and the Clippers, minus 800 over Dallas, are also heavy favorites. But beyond that, when you start looking at the three sixes and the four fives, it, it gets a little bit interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a ton of value in, like, you know, Brooklyn versus Toronto. Um, although I think, you know, minus 700 on Toronto, that's at least something you might consider. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, betting 70 to win 10 isn't great, but you'd feel pretty confident about it without, like, wagering too much. Right. I thought, I think the most interesting to me, you know, right off the bat was um, Philly and Boston both being minus 110. Yeah. Uh, equal odds for, for that series. And I know on a podcast, maybe three or four podcasts ago, I kind of talked about how, or I guess we talked about, like, how Philly and Boston, like, Philly's clearly the more talented team. They have high-end talent, but they have not been playing like the better team. Boston has been playing like the team that should be favored in the series. But then, you know, and so basically what the sportsbook did is they also threw up their hands. And they're like, we don't really know what's happening here. Just bet on who you want to bet on. And I think I think most people would actually bet on Philly because of the talent level. And so I think these odds would eventually, my my prediction would be that the odds would shift more towards Philly's favor. But I, I thought just, you know, that caught my eye right away. Yeah, uh, I mean, Boston would be the higher seeded team in that matchup. Um, I, I think, and I, I wrote briefly in that article that I think Philly is one of the teams that could maybe end up benefiting from, you know, what could kind of be a, a wacky format, for lack of a better term. You know, I mean, they were just so, so much better at home than on the road. And, and obviously, you know, if you're playing these games at a neutral site, um, and we should say, I think the possibility that the season finishes and they, these games are played at the normal sites that they would be with fans is almost off the table, right? Like even, even if they do this, this quarantine thing in Vegas, there won't be any fans. So I, I think like home court advantage is just gone. So maybe that hurts Philly in one respect, but at the same time as the lower seed in this matchup with Boston, you know, if it, if it were to go seven, hypothetically, you know, it's seven neutral site games rather than having to play four of those on the road where they've really struggled. So I, I think that's maybe part of it. Um, and the other thing is, you know, if, if if the playoffs were going on as scheduled and, you know, would begin in like two weeks right now, there's a pretty good chance that Ben Simmons wouldn't be available or at the very least wouldn't be 100 percent. And I, I think it's kind of baked into these odds that Ben Simmons will likely be significantly closer to 100 percent in mid-July than he would be in mid-April. Yeah, that's important to consider. Also, Kemba Walker, who right. was kind of having some issues as well. So I think I think this is kind of the uh, working under the assumption that both of those guys will be much healthier than they they would have been otherwise. Um, I was also kind of intrigued by um, uh, you know, I mean, Denver being favored over Houston was kind of interesting, and mm-hmm. Utah is minus one sixty over Oklahoma City, which as, isn't really like that heavy of a favorite at all. Um, you know, you, no. you can, yeah. So that, that was surprising as well. I mean, I know Oklahoma, Oklahoma city has been playing really well and I believe in them as a good team, even though their bench is pretty suspect other than like Dennis Schroeder. But, right. um, I, I thought it was interesting. Those odds were so tight. I think the confidence yeah. in Utah, I, maybe the confidence in Utah is, um, artificially lowered because everybody was so high on them to start the season. Mm-hmm. You know, people are on ESPN being like, this is my dark horse team. Right. Uh, and so I think maybe people are kind of more down on them now than they should be. So this point kind of applies to both of the series that you mentioned, Utah, Utah OKC, 
uh, in Houston, Denver, you know, the Houston, like you said, is the underdog. They're plus 105 and they're not a, they're not a major underdog, but they are. And then you look at the title odds on both sides. It doesn't matter whether you're, you're talking DraftKings or FanDuel. Houston has, you know, the, the much better chance in those eyes to to get, you know, to win the title in DraftKings. Houston's 13 to one. Denver's 30 to one. FanDuel, Houston's 12 to one and Denver's 25 to one. So Denver is favored to beat Houston. And yet I guess the belief or the implication with these odds is that if Houston gets past Denver long term, they're the team that has the higher upside and could actually win the title. I mean, I can understand where that logic is com- coming from, and people are probably more, you know, they're going to be more likely to bet on um, James Hargan and Russell Westbrook than they are right. Jokic and company. But I think, you know, I still do think Denver is the more complete team. Uh, and so, it is an interesting first round matchup and one that, you know, I mean, theoretically, the value is on Houston then because if they're the team that is more likely to win the title, they're probably going to get out of the first round. So um, right. that doesn't, I'm, but I'm still not 100% sure I would bet on Houston. No. I think I, not that there's a ton of value in Denver, but no. I, um, I, that would be a tough one for me to, to, I have to sit down and think about that one. Houston's a team that, like, again, when you, when you start to look at what this format, is likely going to be I, I think it maybe benefits Houston a little bit like just the the kind of chaos component like they were already kind of doing this weird style you know they uh, half the teams in the league you know haven't even played them since they kind of fully switched over to this this ultra small ball you know so I, I think you know I, I think if you're playing a one game series against a team like Houston that really benefits them because they're a team that I could see like there's not a team whether you're talking the east or the west there's not a team that I don't think Houston can beat in a one game playoff right I mean in a seven game series, when you start to pit Houston against the Clippers, even if Houston wins game one, you know, my thought is, okay, maybe they, maybe they shoot really well, or the Clippers just weren't ready for, for that style. But over the course of seven games, you have faith that the better team is usually going to adjust and end up winning. And if you're, if you're talking a round two, that that's looking at, you know, Houston against the Clippers or Houston against the Lakers, and it's just one game. I mean, to me, that's, that's almost going to be a 50, 50 proposition, right? Yeah, I mean, because Houston, I mean, Houston's team is just built for high variance. Right. The threes that they shoot, all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, they would benefit from a one-game series. Um, I, I, I definitely agree with you on that. Are there are there any other teams that you think would benefit uh, from from what the format could end up being? I think the, I mean, maybe the Clippers. I mean, you, you yes. know, late down the stretch of of last playoffs, we saw how bothersome you know Kawhi's knee was getting, you know, when, when they were walking off the court in those finals games, he was, he had a pretty bad limp. So getting Kawhi Leonard as much rest as possible or basically not making him play, you know, like a uh, 12, you know, minimum playoff games or whatever to get to the NBA finals is if, if Kawhi only has to play four games to get to the NBA finals, that is an insane benefit. Yeah. I think beyond that too, like, I, did you watch Lakers Clippers, which I don't, was that like a month ago now? Like the the last big uh, NBA one, Sunday game, the one where Paul George went off in like the first yeah the quarters. one the, Lake, the one the Lakers won yeah right before the shutdown. Like how many times during that game did they mention the crowd? You know that was technically a Clippers home game, and it was like at least seventy thirty Lakers fans, and it was you know I think they kept mentioning it in the context of like man this is going to be seven home games for the Lakers in the playoffs. All of a sudden, like the the big kind of home court disadvantage that the Clippers had vanishes. So I think that I think that's another respect in which this you know this neutral site uh, type of thing probably ends up helping the Clippers more than it does any other team in the West. 
just from a, just from yeah. like the lack of fans probably hurts everybody to, to some degree. But I think like if you're the Clippers, maybe you'd rather play in front of no fans than in a home arena that's filled with opposing fans. Yeah, that's a really good point. And yeah, I didn't, I didn't think about that initially, but you know, I think, yeah, I, the, the, the Lakers not having all that home court, I think does, does matter a lot. Right, right. I think they were one of the teams um, that, that, that seemed to benefit most from that. But any other values that you like? I mean, I've kind of been preaching all year that I, I am like 100% sure, and this was under the old playoff format, but I'm 100% sure that Milwaukee, the Lakers, or the Clippers, were, one of those three was going to win the title. And right now, I would still pick the Clippers. So like, it's really hard for me to honestly look at these numbers and be like, yeah, I feel great about Boston at 20 to 1 or Toronto at 24 to 1. Like, yeah, I, I really can't give a hard sell. For any of those, but is there any any number uh, beyond that top beyond those top three teams, Milwaukee and the LA teams, that that kind of intrigues you to any degree? Um, you know, I think I think there's still value. I, I think there's value on Houston for the reasons that we talked about with the variance, um, and I think there's still value on Philadelphia because of their overall talent level. Um, I think Phil, Philadelphia is the farthest I would go down that list. I mean, if you're I don't know. I mean, we, we've talked all year about how they're underperforming, et cetera, but you still have Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, you know, Tobias Harris, Al Horford hasn't been playing that well, but he could step up Raul and play Neto, Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, Mike Scott. Uh, <laughs> but you can get them at 27 to 1, right. you know, to win the NBA title. And I think that's a really good value. And I wouldn't go any farther down that list except to maybe entertain Dallas at 40, 40 to 1, but that's only because they have arguably a top five. Yeah. You know, player on their team and Luka Doncic, and so when you can get forty to one with a top five player plus Porzingis, yeah, um, that's you can't really ignore that. Yeah, that's almost exactly what I put in the piece. You know, I I just you know did a couple sentences on Philadelphia, just kind of laying it out there, like value wise, it's a good play, uh, but at the same time that this team, even when healthy, has given us like very little reason to believe that they're capable of winning a title. Um, and to me, yeah, Dallas, like the number on Dallas is great. I mean, forty to one on DraftKings, thirty six to one on FanDuel, like getting them at that number compared to like Utah at 24 to one or, or Miami at 27. Like I, I love Dallas, but the biggest issue for me is like, I just, I just can't see them getting past the Clippers. They, they have the toughest round one matchup um, maybe of any team besides if you want to say like Memphis, LA or Orlando, Milwaukee, like, you know, I think Dallas is just like their upside. Dallas's upside is just as high as Phoenix or Phoenix. Wow. Utah's uh, or Denver's. Um, but I think the, the strength of that first round matchup just for me, that kind of rules them out. Yeah, that's going to be tough because they're, I mean, they're basically, it's just going to be Paul George and Kawhi on Doncic for 48 minutes. And that's, that's going to be rough. I mean, they, they don't have, they don't have the kind of number three that makes you super confident. You know, it's, it's a lot of, it's going to be a lot of leaning on like Tim Hardaway Jr. Uh, and maybe you try to get weird with Boban. And right. that's not a great, it's not a great situation in the first round against the Clippers. If they were in the first round against, you know, almost anybody else, that's not an LA team. Um, that would be a good thing. You know, if they were playing Utah, I, yeah. that would be interesting to entertain. If they're playing Denver, even if they're playing Houston, but yeah. yeah, the first round matchup is, is horrible. We we've talked about it. I think I would pick them over, over Denver. You know, I, I, I I'm not like anti Denver by any means. I just, I think Dallas would figure out a way to win that series uh, and the other thing to consider is they didn't make the playoffs last year. So Luka Doncic has never played in an NBA playoff game. And right. I mean, there's not a lot of precedent for 
guys coming in, especially being this young, you know, being basically what, 19, 20 years old and, you know, just winning a playoff series right away. You usually take your lumps. I mean, LeBron didn't even make the playoffs until 05, 06 and, you know, was was kind of able to to get by an, an iffy Wizards team in his first playoffs. And then they end up losing. Usually it takes, you know, getting there and failing two or three times um, before you end up, you know, really breaking through. So that that's kind of another thing working against Dallas. But it'll be interesting to see, you know, once we at, at some point hopefully get a a concrete ruling on what these playoffs are going to look like, how that ends up changing the odds. Because I, I think right away, you know, we'll start to see uh, all the factors that we just talked about with a lot of these teams are going to end up being factored into what the final odds are, you know, once this thing ends up being played. Yeah, and one one thing about Doncic is I actually think he may have a better chance than most young players of being really good in his first playoff series because he had been playing so long in Europe at such a high level in such, like, serious, intense, top-level, like, playoff EuroLeague games. And it's not mm-hmm. the exact same as the NBA, but most, you know, it, you know, most of these great players who are potentially in the playoffs, like 20, 21, they probably were one, one and done in college. That yeah. doesn't necessarily mean they played in the, uh, you know, in the, in the last round of the, they got all the way through March Madness and done situation where you can get bounced in the second round, even if it's to a bad team, even if you're an amazing player. And, um, you know, high school doesn't, doesn't really count. Um, no, that does not count. So, <laughs> so I think, I think Doncic could actually do well in his, his first playoff series because of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fair point. Um, all right. So we did the NBA all time draft last night on the Sirius XM show. I, I did that with Jeff Erickson, Chris Liss and Andre Stellings, who, who used to write for us at Rotowire now works for ESPN. Um, my mentions have been just assaulted today uh by white males in their in their 50s um just kind of <laughs> shouting shouting at me shouting at jeff shouting at Liz, shouting at andre for for some of the picks that we made um but that I, I know that you've had a chance to look at the final results uh we went eight players per team so 32 total players were drafted and you know like i explained to you off air like the criteria was never like super clear what we were doing exactly so um you know, it was kind of like you're building a team that would be playing today, but you're getting all the past players in their prime. Of course, you know, you're not drafting like 88 year old Bill Russell. Um, but then, you know, we, a lot of players who are, have only been in the league for a few years, you know, Giannis, um, Zion Williamson was drafted, Luka Doncic was drafted. So for some of these guys, you're kind of projecting out, um, you know, what their peak upside would be uh, based on what we've seen so far. So uh, I ended up with a fourth pick in this draft, which I, I think is kind of a disadvantage because there are two very obvious picks, you know, one and two, LeBron and Jordan. Uh, and LeBron especially in this format where we had to do one center, two forwards, two guards, and then three bench spots. Like having LeBron, who you could put at any starting spot, he's kind of, he's like having the queen in chess, um, is huge because that really opens things up for the roster. So he went to Dre at one. Michael Jordan went two to Jeff. Larry Bird went three to Liss. Uh, and then at the turn, I, I took Shaq and Kevin Durant. Uh, at four and five. So uh, I won't run down the full the full list. That would be a lot of reading. But if you want to read it, it's up on the site. It's been up on Twitter um, all day. So you can check that out to, to kind of follow along. But uh, what are your initial questions, criticisms, um, praise maybe that you have to offer for, for my roster or the rest of the guys? Uh, I do. I do like the the Shaq Durant combo. I mean, if you're if you're building a team that it, it, if it's supposed to work, on the court which i i 
don't exactly you, you mentioned the criteria was kind of you know yeah. up in the air but if this is an actual team Shaq and KD is like the per- one of the perfect one two you know I mean it's basically like a souped up Kobe plus Shaq uh, um, and we saw how many titles they could win um, and so I, I get that um, the Tim Duncan call basically you just put together like one of the the maybe the best defensive front court possible with your third pick um, I mean yeah, I mean, I like the um, the Magic Johnson pick. I see your fourth is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, like, you know, if you're talking point guards, I I may have gone like I, I would consider maybe John Stockton. Um, Stockton for, was not like picked. the floor spacing. Yeah, that's wild to me, dude. Like he one, he's an awesome defender. Uh, obviously, one of the best passers in NBA history. He could hit the three. Even Chris Paul is someone who, like, and if you're putting together a real basketball team with, like, you and you want floor spacing, uh, would make sense. But obviously, I understand going for Magic Johnson. I mean, your team is huge. I mean, you basically well, I, I have, have CP on my roster. So oh, he's. Oh, I didn't even write and read that yeah. far. So I'll, I'll guess I'll just give you my full roster. I have Shaq, KD, Tim Duncan, Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul Jabbar, who I got in round six, uh, Chris Paul, Luka Doncic, <laughs> and Scottie Pippen, my final pick. Um, so I'm lacking, I'm lacking shooting a little bit. And as I went through, I, I went through yesterday and spent a lot of time kind of putting together my tiers for each position. And there are just, especially when you're, when you're starting basically at 1960, there are so many more quality centers and forwards from that 60 to like late nineties era than there were guards. You know, I mean, I, I had my top tier of guards were Jordan magic, Oscar, Jerry West and Steph Curry. And those guys were all gone early. And after that, you start getting into like, you know, Kobe, Wade, Harden, Chris Paul, Julius Irving, um, but like Dr. J, Isaiah, Stockton, George Gervin, Russell Westbrook. None of those guys were taken. Um, I mean, we, we easily could have gone, you know, if we'd done like 12 guys per roster, you know, then then, of course, they're off the board. But uh, it just felt like it really skewed toward toward centers and forwards for me. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's between you and Liz for the strongest bench. You know, you have Kareem, Doncic, and Pippen coming off the bench. He has Wade, Davis, Bryant, Davis as in <laughs> Davis, comma Anthony. Um, yeah, I uh, listen. I I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but I am not sure why Snelling's picked Manu Ginobili for a bench player. That was wild. Uh, yeah, that was another another reflection of the lack of clarity on what you know. He was definitely putting his team together for like actually winning a game. Like who, what are the lineups I can put together? You know, like I think he, he wanting Manu is just like the ultimate like glue guy. You know, if you're, if you're actually going to play out a season with this team, maybe you would want Manu. Um, whereas like, I was just kind of trying to stockpile the most talent and just hopefully it works out, you know? Yeah. I mean, and that's I would rather, I would rather have Scotty Pippen or Luka Doncic, but no, I, I understand when the format's not clear. I mean, you could, I mean, if you're arguing that you're, you're having one guy come off the bench, Ginobili might be yeah. one of the best six man of all time, then sure. Right. Like, for sure. And I think it was reflected too. with, he took Clay Thompson in round six, you know, so Clay Thompson is off the board before, um, you know, he's off the board before Dwayne Wade, before Chris Paul, before Anthony Davis, before Kobe. Um, and I don't think anyone's arguing that Clay is a better player than those guys or has a, a better legacy than any of those guys. But I think there's a strong case to be made that even if you're just trying to win one game, I think I there's a given the construction of the team when you already have LeBron, Garnett, Jerry West, Kawhi Leonard, like you don't really need what Dwayne Wade or Kobe Bryant bring to the table. Like I, I think there is an argument that Clay Thompson is more valuable to that situation than Kobe is, even though nobody's claiming that Clay's a better player than Kobe. Right. 
I'm a little surprised uh, Barkley didn't get picked. Me too. I, I would have picked him over Zion, personally. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I didn't need him based on, you know, I went Shaq, Durant, Duncan with my first three picks. So that that basically eliminated my need for another power forward, you know, at any point. And like Carl Malone didn't go get off the board till round seven. Um, but that, again, speaks to this, like the depth, you know, of, of the center position. Like nobody even mentioned Dwight Howard the entire time. And I know Dwight's a joke, but I mean, if you're, if you're getting this guy at his peak, like he was a top three player in the league for several years, you know, and, and took a team to the finals. So um, like Patrick Ewing was not selected, really wasn't mentioned at all. Nobody, nobody talked about some of the more modern big guys, you know, Towns, Jokic, the Gasols. Um, I even had like Ben Wallace was on my list of guys. Like, you know, I didn't, I didn't know where this draft was going to go. I was like, Hey, maybe, you know, maybe I'll end up needing Ben Wallace. Like, no, there was no chance he was going to be selected. Yeah, it is tough. It is tough with some of like the, I mean, the basketball has changed so much. It, like, uh, Dr. J didn't get picked. Um, no. You know, Clyde Drexler, I think, didn't get drafted. Um, you know, Gary Payton could have been selected no. very easily. Well, here's the thing with a lot of that is, you know, so Andre has Bill Russell at center. Uh, Jeff has Hakeem Olajuwon at center. Liss has Wilt Chamberlain at center. I have Shaq and Tim Duncan, you know, as my two big guys. Kareem's coming off the bench. Like, none of those guys spaced the floor at all, you know. And part of the reason was, like, back then, that literally wasn't an option because there was no three-point line. But I think there was kind of a run on, like, okay, we stacked up on these all-time great big men, none of whom can shoot. So that I think that forced a lot of people to compensate and try to grab shooting later. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense. And, like, it's it's tough because... You know, theoretically, you know, a lot of the best players of all time, because, you know, the, this modern era of like kind of the, the the pace and space, like every team playing that way has really only been going on the last, I mean, liberally 10 years uh, and probably more literally five years. And so, you know, a lot of the best players of all time are going to be from the 90s or the 80s, where we where we, we did a rewatchable from a game from like, oh, eight or own what what year was that was that 2009 and no one there was like 15 threes taken that entire game so like mm-hmm. you know it's tough to figure out okay if i'm just pulling from a pool of the best players of all time and we're playing a we're playing in a league where everyone you know if this is actually being played out would it end up being played like a game from the 90s and so would floor spacing matter as much and that's like that's a tough question and one that just I don't even know if you can really answer because you have to get so specific with like, here's how we're drafting teams. Um, right. But, I th- it would be interesting to go both ways. You know, like you, I, I think I think that this draft skewed more towards you're playing the game today under today's styles. So like, you know, I, I didn't get killed for it, but there was some me. Some people questioned me taking Tim Duncan as high as I did. You know, I, I think I think Tim Duncan probably came along at like the perfect time for his skill set, you know, to be able to peak from like 2000 to 2007 was like ideal, you know, it, like some people were shooting threes, but there wasn't really any pressure to do it. And his skill set just fit that era so perfectly. Whereas I think if he's in his prime right now, I mean, he's obviously still an all time great, but he's maybe a little bit less effective than he was, um, you know, in the era that he actually played in. But you can make the same case where like, you know, what if we, what if you had to play this game under 1970s parameters, you know, then all of a sudden like Steph Curry's, yeah, he can, he can launch from 30 feet, but he's only getting two points for it. Right. And I think, you know, and this kind of brings up the discussion of like if some of these players, you know, existed or grew up in the 
modern era would they have learned to shoot threes you know tim duncan probably if he had been taught to play basketball that way could have been you know also a floor spacer and you had only there were only a few guys back then that were you know i think someone like you know i i know you know kind of growing up obviously i didn't know a ton about lip bill lambeer because i was basically born at the end of his career but he was someone who basically towards the end of his career was taking one or two threes a game and shooting like 35 percent and you never think of bill lambeer that way and he would be yeah. someone that's way more valuable in today's NBA or could easily, yep. you know, could more easily mesh in today's league than a lot of other players from mm-hmm. that era. Yeah, that was kind of my case that I made um, on the radio. You know, we, we did this draft live uh, over the course of an, an hour pre-tape show that, that ended up running this morning. But I got Magic Johnson in round four. And right away, they're like, oh, well, you already have two non-shooters in, in Shaq and Duncan. I was like, OK, first of all, Magic shot like 38 percent from the field in like his second to last season, I think. So like once... Once the three-pointer became you know, a little bit more mainstream, which was at the tail end of, of Magic's career, he shot it well. So I, I think you can kind of operate under the assumption that, you know, these guys will kind of adapt to the times, you know, and and there are certain guys like, you know, Gary Payton was never a great three-point shooter. Scottie Pippen, never a great three-point shooter, you know, good, not great. I don't think you can just say like, well, in today's NBA, Pippen would have shot 40%. Like, I don't think that's fair, but, you know, players who never really had a true shot to develop it, um, I think you can kind of bake in some progression. Yeah, I agree. But I mean, that's a, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you guys went through and did that. Cause that's, yeah. you know, I, I mean, it's, it's a good, you know, starting debate topic for, you know, I, for, I mean, for everything, who's better than who, how has the game changed? Right. You know, what style do you prefer? How much do you, you know, appreciate guys peaks versus the, the holes of their careers? Cause you know, obviously certain guys like personally, I think Michael Jorgen's peak was better than LeBron James, but LeBron James's career has been so long that if you're just talking like career accomplishments or like quote unquote greatest, you know, I'd probably put LeBron James there, but I it just it sparks a lot of good discussion. I'm really anxious for that Jordan documentary. Um, you know, I, I to me, like Jordan and LeBron are, are neck and neck. I, I, I wouldn't feel confident saying one over the other definitively. Um, but I've also lived, you know, basically my entire sporting conscious life has been LeBron James, you know, coming into the league when we were like, you know, I think I was in like fifth grade or something like that. So like really run, I was just starting to pay attention to now still when I'm probably paying more attention than ever, you know, we've gotten to see LeBron's career start to finish. Whereas with Jordan, you know, you, you hear about it, you read the numbers, you see the same kind of 10 to 12 highlights over and over. I really hope this, this documentary kind of gets into like the nuts and bolts of each season. I don't know how much that'll actually be the case. Um, but I think it'll kind of go a long way in, I don't think we'll ever settle the debate, but at least giving some more context to the debate for people like us who, you know, maybe remember Michael Jordan on the Wizards. But for the most part, you know, I wasn't watching 40 Chicago Bulls games a year in 1993 when I was eight months old. <laughs> right. Yeah. Actually, I don't like, think I was. I might have been. I don't know. They, they, it seems like they took like a lot of time and got like a ton of different interviews. Like right. it seems like they've been spending, I don't, I, I'm sure it's out there how much time they spent on it, but I'm sure this was like one of the biggest documentaries that ESPN has ever done, if not like the oh, most sure. you know, expansive from like time consuming wise. Right. And I, I think there's a chance that this maybe ends up like negatively impacting Jordan just because everything about him is so positive, especially for the younger people. Right. Like, like I've read that I've read the Jordan rules by, by Sam Smith and that, that certainly puts a negative spin on Jordan, but how many people have read that who are our age? Not that many. You know, I, I think if you, if you walk down the street in Milwaukee or Chicago, certainly, and just ask, you know, the average 24-year-old, 
who's the greatest player ever, they're just going to say Michael Jordan by default. And, they're, you know, they're going to they're under the impression that this guy never missed a shot, that he won every single game he ever played in, you know, which is just not the case. And I think today we've been, you know, the, the games are just so much more available and the players are so much more available that it's a lot easier to see everything and not just, you know, what happens at the end. And obviously Jordan winning six titles in a row um, is is an accomplishment that LeBron is, has never done and, you know, is probably not something we're ever going to see again. And that kind of stands on its own. Um, but I, I think this documentary should at least give some more context. But my point is that I think Jordan is so lionized right now that like any even even just like if the documentary is like 20 percent negative, like that might be a lot more negativity than anyone's ever heard about Michael Jordan. You know, and I think there's a chance that like his status is so untouchable right now that like even a little bit of influx of of negativity could kind of end up hurting his standing. Does, does that make sense to you at all? It does. Um, I do think there's a point where certain people get like, so, uh, you know, uh, like idolized that even the bad things about them kind of get like swept under the rug. Isn't the right turn uh, or term, but it's kind of like, Oh, they were only people start to think they were only great because they did those things or they wouldn't have been able to be great if they were a d- different way. Like, yeah, Michael Jordan was the, okay. Let's say the Michael Jordan is the greatest player of all time. Uh, but he also like punched Steve Kerr in the face. Well, maybe he wouldn't have right. had the drive. He, the type of person who would not have punched Steve Kerr in the face could not have been the greatest player of all time. And then you get these weird like back and forths about that sort of yeah. thing. So he may actually be at a point where even those negative stories, it just adds to like the myth of how right. this guy became who he was. Right, exactly. I think it gets spun. And, and Kobe certainly got this treatment as well, where like yeah. Kobe being a complete dick to his teammates was like, he has to, he, he needs to do it or they're not going to win. And like, I don't feel like LeBron has gotten that same benefit of the doubt. It's just been like, oh, LeBron's whining about his team again. You know, whereas like when Jordan and Kobe literally did the same thing and said, I can't win with these guys. It was just viewed as them keeping it real, you know, and I I don't think that we don't we don't give the same benefit of the doubt to not only LeBron, but just like modern players in general. I just want to know that if those people who defend like the Kobe and Jordan, that stuff, if LeBron uppercut Matthew Dellavedova in a practice one day if they would have came on like undisputed and have been like you know what that's what LeBron has to do like that's you know that was the right thing to do it's time for these people to understand right. who LeBron is they need to step yeah. up sometimes you need to upper sometimes you need to Bobby Portis somebody like that's right. just what has to be done yeah all in on using Bobby Portis as a verb by the way <laughs> I I was re-watching um ESPN ran like a long um, kind of like their sports center top 10, but it was like a lengthy, a lengthier version where they did like Jordan's top 10 moments. It was right after they announced that the documentary was being moved up. And one of them was the flu game. And I, I was just thinking like, there's no chance in hell that if LeBron said, I have the flu and I'm going to play through it and was like clearly sick. And every time the camera was on him, he's got towels over him and he looks sick. Like there's no way everybody would be like, wow, this is heroic. It would be like, wow, I can't believe LeBron's playing this up. Right. Am I, am I just being that big of a LeBron Homer or would nobody think that was cool? They would just think he's playing it up for the cameras. Um, they might think he's playing it up for the cameras. I don't know. I think, I mean, I've heard people suggest that for Michael Jordan, but that might be people. Yeah, from, I've never heard, I, heard. I don't know. People, I think people have just banked that away as just another classic Jordan moment. I mean, I may have heard that from like my dad, like people who lived in that era, you know what I mean? Like, who didn't necessarily love Michael Jordan, you know? I mean, because for a lot of people who actually grew up during Michael Jordan, it was like, you know, he was also like to some extent villainized or if your team was going up against Michael Jordan, you, you know, whatever. It was like how, you know, like Kevin Durant's clearly one of the greatest players of all time. I'm not like a Kevin Durant fan. If we have these, 
you know, if Durant finishes career, if he plays to like 40 and he's still scoring like 25 a game, and there's some like Durant documentary about he was the great one of the great scorers ever. I'm not going to be like, yeah, I always loved Durant. He was the greatest of all time or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't I, I don't know if there will ever be a 10 part Kevin Durant documentary, although I, that would be super interesting for for different reasons, I guess, than the Jordan one. All right, so that's it for part one. We ended up going very long on Thursday afternoon. So part two, which is going to push live on Friday morning, that will be our mock draft of the NBA uh, under the rule that you're only building a team for the next five seasons. So Alex and I went pretty deep on each of our rosters, 12 guys, 24 players total, uh, but it was a lot of fun. And the results, I, I think, were really interesting when you start to weigh guys like LeBron at age 35, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, both guys over 30, uh, against some of the younger stars in the league and, and how you value the end of some of those primes versus the primes that are still yet to come. Again, that'll publish on Friday morning. Keep an eye out for that in your feed. And we'll also throw up an article on the site with the full grid and a little more info on the format and how we went about building these rosters. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.